pray with me. Father, Jesus is all we need. There is power in the name. There's healing in the name. Father, we just pray this morning that in these coming moments that, that we one thing on our mind, and that's Jesus. Empty us of ourselves. Humble us. And let us just feast on the name of Jesus and live for the name of Jesus. Father, thank you for the beauty of that, of that message through song. And thank you, dear God, for how it stirs in our hearts our love for Jesus. And Father, when we, uh, when we are lonely, when we are afraid, when we are in difficult situations, let us cling to the name of Jesus. And let us cling to the hope that he gives us. Father, one day Jesus will return. And this morning, help us to put our focus on that and help us to realize how urgent it is for us to know about his return and to be able to tell others. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text this morning is found in Acts chapter 1. The first 11 verses of Acts chapter 1. Would you stand this morning, if you're physically able, for the reading of God's Word? In the first book of Theophilus, of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. You may be seated. Faith. Faith. That word becomes so powerful to these men who had just watched Jesus, watched his ascension and going back to heaven. Faith becomes their life at this point. Because up until this point, they had been able to walk by sight. They had been able to see Jesus. They had been able to touch Jesus. They'd heard the, the audible voice of Jesus. They had, they had witnessed the miracles of Jesus and heard the teaching of Jesus. 
And now at this moment, Jesus ascends back into heaven and now they don't live by sight, but they live by faith. And as they're gazing up there into heaven, it becomes obvious to them that for the rest of their life here on this earth, that they will live by faith in the words that Jesus has spoken to them and has left them with. Now, this morning our subject is the fact that Jesus will return. Every song that we sang this morning was lifting up the name of Jesus and, and exalting Jesus. And it was so wonderful to be able to, 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 to stand here and to sing praises to Jesus and to know that that Jesus that we sing to, he came and he lived on this earth. He humbled himself and came to this earth. He lived on this earth. He gave his life here and that he, he was resurrected just as, the, as we sang about this morning. But here, these are all facts that we know. But here is another great fact. We have the fact that someday Jesus Christ will return. We have that fact. And God's word makes it very clear that Jesus will return. Now we look at our world and we, we look at the events going on in our world. We see and we, uh, we, we wonder sometimes. And sometimes we've had conversations. I've had conversations with some of you. And we've asked ourselves this question. How much longer will God allow things to go in the way that they're going? How much longer will God allow the world to continue in the wickedness that it is in? How much, further, how much more wicked can the world become? And how long will God allow us to live in this world this way? But I want to tell you that God's word makes it very clear that there is a coming judgment on this earth. The return of Jesus to this earth is not something about which people speculated and believed should happen. It is that which God, through his divinely inspired word, has said will happen. It will happen. It's a fact. Jesus spoke about his return in Matthew chapter 24th in what we call the Olivet Discourse. Jesus gave um, the, the disciples who were there with him, he gave them words to, to, to remember by. And now as he has ascended, these words are coming back into their head as they think about these things. The church, uh, Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, and he, these were people who were worried about future events and about how things were going to, to, to go for, for the rest of their lives and after they passed from this life. And he assured them that someday Christ would return, and he gave them instruction. The writer of Hebrews, Peter and Second Peter, they all make it known that God's word is clear on this subject, that Jesus, there is the fact that he will return. Just as there had been a literal physical life that Jesus came and lived here on this earth, there will be a literal physical return of Jesus at the end of time as a prelude to final judgment and the redemption of his creation. Now, why does that have to happen? It has to happen because God is a just God. God is just and he is righteous. And in, his, in, in that justice and righteousness, there has to be a judgment upon this earth. And there has to be a redeeming of the creation that, that was. 
And so we know that someday because of this, there will be a return of Christ. Now, all these things, when we think sometimes about these future events, some people, even, even believers, some people hear these things and they get frightened or they worry about these things. These things, these things that are written about the certainty of the second coming of Christ are not meant to worry us or to give us any kind of doubt or fear. They are written to bring us hope and comfort as believers that someday Christ will return and he will return for us. Yeah, all of us, there are, there are many different views on the details of, of Christ's return. There are different opinions sitting here among us. I have an opinion that some of you may differ with, and you may have an opinion that I differ with. But the bottom line is this, is that Jesus is coming back. He will return, just as Paul spoke about in 1 Thessalonians, and it will, it will get to that in just a minute. But there is a purpose to Christ's return. There is a purpose for him to re of his return. And that purpose is this. The return of Christ to earth will reveal his infinite glory and majesty. It will, it will reveal his, his eternal glory and majesty, and there will be no question about it. I want you to think about this. Everything that has ever happened since recorded time, since God's word said in the beginning, every single thing that has happened has been to glorify God and to show his majesty. In creation, we see the glory of God and we see his majesty. We see even in the flood uh, that comes in Genesis, uh, we see his glory and his majesty. We see his glory and his majesty in the exodus of the Hebrew children as they leave from Egypt and they cross the dry land that was once the Red Sea. And we see the glory of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We see it so much, the, the glory and majesty there. And in this passage of Scripture, we see the ascension, and we see his glory and majesty there. And verses 10 and 11 are very, uh, very detailed about what is happening here. They were gazing into heaven as he went. And two men stood beside them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, how did they see him go into heaven? The scriptures tell us here that there was a cloud that he went up to heaven in. Now, here's where some people get the misconception about heaven. They, they see this verse or they hear this verse, and they think that in heaven everybody's sitting around on what? Sitting around on a cloud playing a harp. That's not what's happening in heaven. Souls are not sitting around on clouds uh, playing harps in heaven. This cloud that is around Jesus as he goes up is not a cloud, a literal cloud like what we think of a cloud when we look up in the sky. This cloud is his glory. The, the, the Hebrew word is Shekinah glory. This cloud is his glory as it is lifting him up and he is going. He's leaving glorified as he goes back to the Father to sit at the right hand here at the ascension. Jesus is, is glorified here, and it is so amazing to these men. They're standing, and they're looking up into the heavens. Not long ago, we had an eclipse, and I was standing out here in the front yard of the church, and they gave you all these instructions about how to, what to look through and how to look through it and not to burn your eye. And I'm looking up in the sky, and I can't see anything. I'm not doing it right. 
And I imagine I, I, as I stood there for about five minutes trying to do it, I'm thinking everybody who rode by in that last, last five minutes is thinking, what is that idiot looking at? What is he trying to see? I never did see it. Yeah, maybe, I, maybe I'll live to see another one. I have no idea. But here's what I know. These men were gazing at the glory of Jesus. They were gazing and they were in awe. There's also a sense of this. Nobody has voiced it, maybe, but they're all, they're all like this. He was just here. He was standing right here. I could, I could reach out and physically touch him. I could hear his voice. He just gave us instructions about what to do. And now all of a sudden, he's gone. He's left us. And, and, and all of a sudden, in their minds, they're hearing all the words that he spoke to them all the way back to the moment at, Caesar, at Caesarea Philippi where when he told Peter that he was the rock that we would build, he would build this church upon, and he told them about his coming, having to go to Jerusalem and be sacrificed and be murdered by the people there. And from that moment on, he has been preparing them for this moment when he would leave them. Now, there are two men there who startle the disciples, and they ask this question. Why do you stand looking into the heavens? Why do you stand looking into the heavens? Now, that'd be a question that maybe we could be asked this morning. Why do we stand looking into the heavens? This morning, we, if, if what we, if the, word, if the music that we sang this morning didn't move your heart and didn't, and didn't speak to your heart, there's something wrong. And it would be wonder, it is wonderful that we were able to sing and we were able to rejoice together and to able to have that, that moment together as a body of believers. But what if that's all we did today? What if, what if, what if for the rest of the week that was all that we put into? What, what if we stayed, we all this week, Monday through Saturday, we just sat and thought about that, the singing that we heard here this morning and how wonderful it was. That The angels could ask us, why do, why do you sit there gazing back at what you've already done? God has something for you to do ahead of this. And so these angels that, that show up here and they talk to, to the disciples, they ask them, why are you standing here looking into heaven? Jesus has just given you clear instructions about what you're supposed to do. You are supposed to go to Jerusalem and wait for the day of Pentecost to come and the Holy Spirit will come, just as Jesus has said. And all of a sudden, they get it. They are able to look at each other. These 11 men are able to look at each other and say, hey, you know what? He meant it. He really did leave. And now we are the church that he's going, and we are the, what he's going to build this church on, this eternal church that's going to come. And he really meant it. And now here we are. The two men add, there's no point standing here looking in the sky. It immediately is for you to get busy. And then they say this, this same Jesus, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And here it is. The promise of Christ's return is clear to them. I wonder if any of them, for just a moment, were thinking back to the words that we have in John chapter 14, where Jesus had said to them, 
I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will return. Now, the angels tell the disciples how Christ will return. They tell the disciples that he will come in the same way you have seen him go, which means this. He's going to return boldly someday. He's going to return boldly in a cloud of glory. He's going to come back personally, visibly in glory, exactly as the disciples saw him go. Now, how can we, how can we trust this statement? We trust this statement because who remember who these men are that these two are talking to. These are Jewish men who have been converted and born again in Christ. Now, what do these Jewish men growing up, if something was a fact, if something were true, how many people had to be a witness to it? There had to be at least two who witnessed something. For something to go into, if you went into a court, in a Jewish court, there had to be at least two witnesses because in that, in that system, there had to be two people who could corroborate what they had to be able to back up what the other one was saying. So God sends two here to tell them, and that this is why they understand and know this is truth that is being told to them that Jesus will return just as he has exited. Now let's separate some theology for just a second. Let's, let's talk about what this return is not. Now, this return is not the blessed hope of the church, which is the rapture of the church. Now, there will be a rapture of the church that happens first. Jesus will call his church to be with him. We will meet him in the air. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul does a wonderful job of describing this to the church there at Thessalonica when he says that first of all, the dead in Christ will rise, and then those who, those who are left, those who are still living, will go behind them. Now, there'll be a, the Bible says, Paul writes that there will be a trumpet sound, and then these things will happen. It's what we call the rapture. The Christians will, will leave those who are dead will rise first, and then those who are left. Now, later, there will be a second coming. In that second coming, that is where Jesus will physically return sometime after the rapture. He will physically return just as he left. He will come back to the nation of Israel right in the spot where he left from, where he will stand on the Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem. Zechariah actually prophesied about this before Jesus was even born here on the earth. He says, on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. So remember this, in the rapture that will come before the second coming, we Christians will go home to be with the Lord, but in the second coming, we will return with him as he comes back to judge the earth and set up a thousand-year reign here on the earth. And we need to spend about a month on a Sunday evening talking about all those things. But here, because of the clarity of Scripture, we can see the nearness of Christ's return. The Bible promises that there will be signs of Christ's return. Now, 
There are many signs in the Bible. We don't have time to go into each and every one of them. There are many signs of the return of Christ. One of those being that the Jews will be restored to their homeland. In 1949, this happened. There were a remnant of Jews who were living there. But in 1949, the nation of Israel was granted property there for the Jewish exiles to come back and to live in Israel. Now, there are a lot of different ideas concerning how events will unfold at the return of Jesus. But one thing is very clear. The second coming of Jesus is always closely associated with the return of the Jews to their homeland. Always throughout Scripture, his second coming is always associated with the return of the Jews to their homeland. And here's what, here's what we see. As we look at Scripture, we look at the prophecy of Scripture, the world is going to become divided over what nation? The world is going to become divided over the nation of Israel. There will, be, there will be nations that will be pro-Israel. There will be nations that will be anti-Israel. And if you are paying attention to the news and you're watching what is happening, this grows more and more every day. Anti-Semitism or hatred of Jewish people is, is growing at, at rates that it hasn't grown since World War II and, and the Holocaust. We see the, 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 the hatred of, of these people there in the nation of Israel. And it's all pointing to someday a great battle in which Israel will be the center. So one of the, one of the leading signs of the return of Christ is centered around the Jews going back to their homeland and the world being divided over the nation of Israel. But then there is the great moral and spiritual decay that we see in the world and it is going to grow and increase in its, in its wickedness. Jesus said this in Matthew 24. He said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of, of, of his return. Look at the Genesis chapter 6 in verse number 5. This is the way it was in the day of Noah. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord looked and saw the, the wickedness of man was great. What do you think the Lord sees when he looks at the earth that we live on today? The wickedness of man is great, and the wickedness of this world grows and gets worse and worse as we, as we live. Now you're, I, I know I always get this. Well, it's always been this way. We just have modern technology that shows us this evil uh, better than what we've been able to see it in the past. I'm going to tell you this, I believe the, the, a lot of the modern technology that we have is what is spreading the evil that we have so fast and so quickly. So there is a description in Scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that Paul gives to Timothy when he talks about the last days. He says this, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. 
Now, the old King James says it best here when he says there will be perilous times. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, but denied with sins and led a, um, burdened with sins and led away, led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to rely, arrive at a knowledge of the truth. But as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for the folly will be plain to all as, as it was with those two men. It's very clear. When you read those verses, you hear those verses, it's very clear that all of those things would apply to the world we live in today. All of those things would be evident and be things that we can see in this world today. Paul told Timothy that people will be lovers of themselves, a selfish people, a people who put themselves ahead of God, a people who put their desires ahead of God, a people who put their wants and needs and passions ahead of their love of God, lovers of self. Have you ever known a, a more selfish time and, and, and that, than what we live in now? He goes on to say that men shall be covetous. They shall be lovers of money. Benjamin Franklin said this, It is better to go, it is be, better to, go to bed supperless than to run into debt. Better to go to bed hungry than to run into debt. But yet we live in, a, in an America where we are attracted by what we think is the good life. And that good life has lured millions of Americans hopelessly into debt that they will die with. We are addicted to living beyond our means in order to gratify what we want. And then he says that there's a people without conviction. A people without conviction. In verses 3 through 5, he describes those people. They will be despisers of good. And they will be lovers of pleasure, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its, po denying its power. What is a despiser of good? If you have a biblical stance, if you have a, a, a belief that is tied to the Bible, if you believe the Bible and believe that it's true and believe that it's without error and believe that it is how we should live and what should govern our lives, the world despises us. The world, the world hates the Word of God. And we live in that day where we increasingly see that we are despised for believing in, our, in, our, in the Word of God. I've taken a very strong stance on a couple of things from the pulpit. I've taken a very strong stance on, on biblical marriage. I've taken a very strong stance on, on, on those issues that surround that. And I've always wondered, what would it be like to be, to be hated or despised for a stance that you took on God's Word? Well, guess what? 
Now I know. Now I know. Because I can go places socially, just right here in, in my own hometown, I can go places socially, and I have people who won't speak to me. I have people who shun me because of the stances that I've taken on God's Word. Now, what we say here in church, what I preach here in church doesn't stay here in church, obviously. And now we have uh, the Internet. We're on YouTube, and other people listen to our sermons. So now I not only have the opportunity to make y'all mad every Sunday, but I have the uh, opportunity to make everybody that has access to the Internet mad. But guess what? I'm not going to change what I believe about the Bible. I'm not going to change what the black and white words of the Bible say. I'm not going to stop believing because people are upset and angry at me because someday I've got to stand and give an account to God for what I did with his word. And someday I want to be able to stand before him and say, I took everything in your word and I put it to heart and I li that's what I live by. I don't, want to, I don't want to be able to, I don't want to have to stand there and say that, well, uh, Lord, if I had spoke about this from behind the pulpit, I would have offended this group of people and, and they wouldn't have come to church anymore. Or, Lord, if I had said this about your word, I would have offended another group of people and they wouldn't speak to me anymore. Listen, I've had somebody mad at me since the first day of kindergarten. Now, my whole life, there's been at least one person mad at me since the first day of kindergarten. I ain't going to change. I'm going to stand on God's Word. I'm going to stand on the principles of that Word. And here's, what's, here's what you're going to increasingly see happening. And here's how I know that this applies to what I'm preaching about Christ's return. The assault and the attack on God's Word increases all the time. It, it, is, it is growing greater and greater all the time. If you... Just five, ten years ago, what you believed about the Bible had no impact on you outside of, out, in your world, outside of here. But now suddenly what you believe about the Bible and what you believe about what God's Word says, it's going to impact some of you on your jobs. Some of you who own businesses, it's going to cost you in your business. Some of you who uh, are a part of groups socially, it's going to cost you there. More and more you're going to see increasingly those who stand for God's word are going to be despised and, and it's going to increase. Because this world is a lover of pleasure, as the Bible says here in 2 Timothy. This world is a lover of pleasure and the pleasures that they love go completely against God's word. The immorality that they love goes against the word of God. And so increasingly, we're going to be despised for what we believe. These people have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. These are people who would tell you, oh, I'm a believer. I go to church. I attend church. But no change has come about them. Nothing about their lives lines up with Scripture. They have the appearance of godliness. They, they may be going through the motion and going through the form, but there's no power in their life that should be there evident in the life of a Christian. And Paul tells Timothy this, avoid these people. Now, right now, I don't have to avoid those people. They avoid me. But there's going to come a time where I'll have to look and see and avoid those people. Now, there's also Timothy, Paul describes a Timothy of people who lack a conscience. Now, go back and think about what 
Jesus said about the days of Noah and the words there in, in Genesis chapter 6, it says that every intention of the thoughts of their hearts were only evil continually. Now, these people have always been around, but it, they grow in number and they grow in boldness. In religious circles, those who are, are intent on infiltrating the church and changing the church from, the, from being something that stands for the Word of God to being just a semblance and a form, these people used to be easily spotted. It used to be easily spotted those who were teaching something false because they were walking down the street handing out magazines at your house and, and everybody that saw them at one house, they'd close the blinds and hide because they didn't want them to come you know, the, to their house. In our neighborhood, Tyler Grimes lives up front so when, when the Jehovah Witnesses comes to Tyler's house, he lets the rest of us know through a text message. It was a time where false teachers were easily spotted, but now they blend in. Now they blend in all around us. And now they grow in popularity because they take just a little bit of truth. Just as Satan did in Genesis chapter 3 when he tempted Eve, they have just enough truth to try to kind of make themselves legitimate, but behind that a little bit of truth, they, they, there's a great lie that will someday be exposed when Christ returns. They blend in, and they have just enough truth to legitimize themselves. Now, what does all that have to do with Christ's return? It has this. Someday Christ is coming in judgment. Now, when he came the first time, he came humbly, he came lowly, he came in what in theology we say he came in humiliation. He took on the form of a man. He was a servant. And he came to serve and he came to, to lay down his life without question. But when he returns at the second coming, that's not who he is. That's not who's returning. When he returns at the, at the second coming, he's coming as King of kings and Lord of lords. He's coming in glory and power. And he's coming to establish his kingdom here. And he's coming to say that the, the lawlessness and the evil and the wickedness and all the things that have been accepted as, as good and true and all the things that go against God's word all these things, he's coming back, and he's coming back in judgment at that point. And he's coming back not this, when he came the first time, he came with his hand extended, offering the grace of God. When he comes back the second time at his return, he's coming with the wrath of God. And every, all the evil that has been, and all the wickedness that was, has been, there will be judgment for that at that time now preacher Michael brother Mike whatever y'all call me I don't want to know what some of you call me uh, why would you preach why would you preach a message like this I can go I can go uh, I can go all over the county and all over the state and I, I can go and, and I can be lifted up and 
and somebody pat me on the back and tell me how good I am and, and, and give a little bit of scripture and then read from a psychology book the rest of the time and I leave feeling good in my heart and feeling loved and, and, and all this. Here's why. Because nobody's preaching this anymore. Because nobody's teaching this anymore. Because I don't know if Darren uh, is, is in the, reads and sees the same things that I see, but in minister circles, we're actually, we are actually admonished not to preach this anymore because it doesn't attract people and because it doesn't bring people to our church. They don't want to hear about the coming judgment of God. They want to hear about how good they are. I want to tell you this. There's nothing good in me. There's not one good thing in me except Jesus Christ. And I, I want to tell you that because of the preaching of these, of these things when I was a boy, I understood this, and I understood that someday Jesus was coming, and he was coming to judge this world. And I understood that there was only one way, there was only one way to avoid that judgment. And that one way was faith in Christ. That one way was, as Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be what? You must be born again. You must be born again. Now, that doesn't mean that, I'm, that my name is on the roll of the church or my name is on the roll of a Sunday school class. That doesn't mean that I attend Sunday school every week and that I do good things and do good deeds. What that means is, is that there's a point in my life where I, I realize there's nothing good in me. And I realized how depraved I am, and, and I realized how much that I needed a Savior. And at that point, Jesus came, and he saved my soul. He forgave me of my sins, and he, forgave, he, he made me a new creation in Christ. That's why this is important. That's why this is important. Because these things are going to come and these things are going to happen and there are millions of people sitting on church pews this morning that when it happens, they're not going to understand why. They're not even going to know what, what has happened. Because they put their faith and trust in a church and in a speaker and not they didn't put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And it's going to be a horrible realization at that moment. And what I, why I'm preaching this today, other than the fact that the Lord gave me these scripture and told me to preach it, this is what I want to I, I give you. I want you to understand that you must be born again. You have to have forgiveness of your sins. There's no other way. There's no other way to avoid the wrath of God than this. There is a judgment for our lives. There is a judgment for how we live if we die apart from Christ. Now, how do we avoid all this? We avoid all that by doing this. God, here I am. I'm a horrible sinner. And I can't forgive myself. And I can't work my way to you. I have to have you to forgive me. I have to have you to forgive me. And believing and knowing, and what I said earlier, that literally and physically, Jesus came he was born, he lived, and he died, and he was resurrected. And that's what matters. And that's what avoids, that's how we avoid the wrath of God at the return of Christ. Now, 
Some of you will leave and you'll say, I don't want to hear those kind of messages. Maybe next week he'll come back and he'll preach something uplifting. I don't know. Maybe I will. But I feel compelled today to tell you that you must be born again. You have to have faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask Darren to come and lead us in a time of invitation. And I want to give you I want to give you an opportunity this morning that if you're here and you need forgiveness of your sins, you need to know Christ through the forgiveness of your sins that you would take that opportunity this morning.